Anderlich. Right, the other wise guy. To the show. <laughs> <laughs> and provocateur in chief. There you go. <laughs> and uh, we broadcast from the historic Union Hall in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral homeland of the Salish people. Although we are recording the show from the comfort of our own homes, they too are located in the ancestral homeland of the Salish people. And we hope you are holding up and doing your part by staying at home as best you can and by wearing masks when you do go out into public and by frequent washing of your hands. The show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio in the historic Union Hall. And we, again, want to give old Mick a shout-out as he is at home, too. Yes, I'll join you in that, Mark. Mick is the, is the legacy sound man and commentator. <laughs> and I'm and Jim is just doing his very best to live up to Nick's standards. So, Nick, please come home. Look <laughs> forward to having you back behind the mic. So, we have our word of the week, which is actually two words. Yeah, it's it's coming back for an encore performance, <laughs> and the, uh, and to make up for lost time, our words of the week are general strike okay mark what do you got to say about that all right well uh wikipedia is always good for kind of an introduction to things and uh it, it says a general strike or mass strike is a strike action in which a substantial proportion of the total labor force in a city region or country participates General strikes are characterized by the participation of workers in a multitude of workplaces and tend to involve entire communities. Yeah, so a general strike is when large numbers of workers uh, refuse to work in location. That's right. Do we, do we know when the first general strike happened? Well, maybe not the very <laughs> We, I'm not sure we know that, but we do know on record um, an early predecessor of the general strike may have been the Secessio Plebis in ancient Rome. In the outline of history, H.G. Wells recorded the general strike of the plebeians. The plebeians seem to have invented the strike, which now makes its first appearance in histories, said Wells. Their first strike occurred because they saw with indignation their friends who had often served the state bravely in the legions, in the military, thrown into change and reduced to slavery at the demand of patrician creditors, end quote. Wells noted that the patricians made a mean use of their political advantage to grow rich through the national conquests at the expense not only of the defeated enemy, but of the poorer plebeian. The plebeians who were expected to obey the laws but we're not allowed to know the laws, which the patricians were able to recite from memory, were successful, winning the right to appeal any injustice to the General Assembly. In 450 BC, in a concession resulting from the rebellion of the plebeians, the laws of Rome were written for all to peruse, end quote. Oh, that is a wonderful thing. Um, with patricians, being equivalent to today's 1% and the plebeians similar to today's 
Yeah, exactly, exactly right. Voice of the people. There, that's right, and uh, it's interesting to note that there's uh, lots of shades of uh, similarity. Um, low all these thousands of years uh, later, uh, we still have the patricians holding it over the plebeians, and um, and then uh, you know uh, having the law fit the patricians. Uh, owns, uh, you know, uh, own designs and own purposes. And it takes, you know, it takes an uprising of the plebeians to get that change. So, you know, in some ways things don't change that much. Yeah. So um, there's not much noted in histories until the onset of the Industrial Revolution. This is on the general strike. And the, and the Chartist movement in Britain in the 1830s, again from Wikipedia, for the first time in history, large numbers of people were members of the industrial working class. This is in the 1830s. They lived in cities and exchanged their labor for payment. Um, because before this, most people were peasants. They had, they had their own piece of land. They grew their own food. They did crafts. They did... You know, did all kinds, you know, they were more independent and not dependent on wages. Um, exactly. And before that, they were chattel to the lord of the manor right. and produced food on somebody else's land and got to keep some of it. Right, exactly. And a lot of it went up to the top of the hill. Yes, that's yeah, medieval times. Um, so um, by the 1830s, when the Chartist movement was at its peak, a true and widespread workers' consciousness was beginning to awaken in England. The first theorist to formulate and popularize the idea of a general strike for the purpose of political reform was the radical pamphleteer William Benbow, closely involved with planning the attempted Blanketeers protest march by Lancashire weavers in March 1817, he became an associate of William Cobbett and passed his time agitating the laboring classes at their trades meetings and clubhouses. On January 28, 1832, Benbow published a pamphlet entitled Grand National Holiday in Congress of the Productive Classes, uh, it, which means the productive classes versus the non-productive classes, which was the 1%. Um, <laughs> advanced the idea for a national holiday and national convention. By this, he meant an extended period of general strike by the working classes, which would be a sacred or holy action, hence Holy Day, during which time local committees would keep the peace and elect delegates to a national convention or congress, which would agree the further direction of the nation. The striking workers were to support themselves with savings and confiscated parish funds and by demanding contributions from rich people. Benbow's idea of a grand national holiday was adopted by the Chartist Congress of 1839. Benbow, having spent time in Manchester during the 1838-39, promoting the cause in his pamphlet. In 1842, the demands for fairer wages and conditions across many different industries finally exploded into the first modern general strike, also known as the 1842 general strike. After the second Chartist petition was presented to Parliament in April 1842 and rejected, the strike began in the coal mines of Staffordshire, England, and soon spread through Britain, affecting factories, mills in Lancashire, and coal mines from Dundee to South Wales and Cornwall. 
Instead of being a spontaneous uprising of the mutinous masses, the strike was politically motivated and was driven by a hard-headed agenda to win concessions. Probably as much as half of the then industrial workforce were on strike at its peak, over half a million men. The local leadership marshaled a growing, growing working class tradition to politically organize their followers to mount an articulate challenge to the capitalist political establishment. End quote. Uh, Mark, thank you for bringing that factoid to my attention. There's a parallel piece of information I've learned from, you know, reading <laughs> back issues of The Economist for the past couple of decades. <laughs> At the time of the start of the Civil War, the labor condition in the southern U.S. we are familiar with, but um, less widely known is that there was a lot of dissension in the U.K. between labor and capital, uh, primarily, largely in the mills of Lancashire and later Manchester, which were heavily industrializing at that point. Right. And... The, the U.S. You know, or the Confederate states were expecting to have um, you know robust cash flow from selling their cotton all over the world and be able to arm themselves, um, even though they didn't have an industrial base. Yes. And the English pulled a fast one and said, hmm, um, "Let's buy cotton from ourselves at a premium and get it from Egypt and India, mm-hmm. and tell all the mill workers, hey, we're on your side.'" We're not going to grant you freedom specifically, but we're going to show solidarity with your goals by snubbing the southern slave owners in their former colonies. Hmm, they stopped selling cotton to the Confederates, and they lost. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. Thanks for bringing that yeah, up. Yeah, you know, in all the years I studied history in the United States, I never heard that. Widely known in the UK. Yeah. Huh. But just, I used to have a long reading list. What's the first example of a general strike in the US? Well, um, that's probably the 1835 Philadelphia general strike. Figures, uh-huh. uh, Philly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this is an interesting story, too. Um, so it, uh, it was the first general strike in North America and involved some 20,000 workers who struck for a 10-hour workday and increased wages. The strike ended in complete victory for the workers. Influenced by strikes in Boston, unskilled Irish workers on the Schuylkill River coal wars the same year... That's Schuylkill. Schuylkill, okay. Yeah, that's why you got a Philly guy here, you know? <laughs> that's right, you're... You're 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 across the river in Delaware, right? So yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. The Schuylkill, the Schuylkill River, uh, coal wharves. The same year went on strike for a ten-hour day. Uh, this was uh, uh, three hundred workers marched on the coal wharves. They were led by a worker with a sword who threatened death to anyone who crossed the picket line, and unloaded coal from the seventy-five vessels waiting in the water. Okay. Wow, uh, walking a picket with a sword, that's interesting. Um, the, the, the coal heavers were soon joined by workers from many other trades, including leather dressers, printers, carpenters, bricklayers, masons, house painters, bakers, and most notably city employees. 
On June 6th, a mass meeting of workers, lawyers, doctors, and a few businessmen was held in the State House courtyard. The meeting unanimously adopted a set of resolutions giving full support to the workers' demands for wage increases and a shorter workday, as well as increased wages for women workers and a boycott of any coal merchant who worked his men more than 10 hours. The strike quickly came to a close after City Public Works employees joined the action. The Philadelphia city government announced that the hours of labor of the working men employed under the authority of the city corporation would be from 6 to 6 during the summer season, allowing one hour for breakfast and one hour for dinner. On June 22nd, three weeks after the coal heavers initially struck, the 10-hour system and an increase in wages for peace workers was adopted in the city. The news of the strikers' success spread to other cities and was given large coverage. The labor press carried the news as far south as the Carolinas, and a wave of successful strikes followed in its wake. Strikes for the 10-hour day hit towns such as New Brunswick and Patterson, New Jersey, Batavia, Batavia and Seneca Falls, New York, Hartford, Connecticut, and Salem, Massachusetts. By the end of 1835, the 10-hour day had become the standard for most city laborers who worked by the day, with the exception of workers in Boston. Subsequently, the 10-hour day became an integral part of the labor movement in Europe. Have there been other general strikes in the U.S.? Yes, there's been many. Um, another early example of a general strike in the U.S. was the mass abandonment of plantations by black slaves and poor whites during the American Civil War. In his classic history, Black Reconstruction in America, W.E.B. Du Bois describes the, this mass abandonment in precisely these terms, quote, transforming itself suddenly from a problem of abandoned plantations and slaves Captured while being used by the southern enemy for military purposes, the movement became a general strike against the slave system on the part of all who could find opportunity. The trickling streams of fugitives swelled to a flood. Once begun, the general strike of black and white in the U.S. may not have been what many uh, uh, went madly and relentlessly on like some great saga, end quote. And that was from a quote in Wikipedia, again, of W.E.B. Du Bois. So um, perhaps then uh, one of the first general strikes in the U.S. may not have been what many think is organized unions walking out. Yes, and this broader concept of general strike is with us today in the strikes against racist policing, with not only workers refusing to work, but also small business owners refusing to open their doors throughout the country especially in June of this year. Has organized labor advocated for a general strike in the U.S.? Well, that's kind of a mixed bag. Probably the most articulate was the Industrial Workers of the World, also known as the IWW or Wobblies, um, that first articulated and advocated a plan for a general strike. Labor historian Philip S. Foner has researched and written on this. He said the IWW began to fully embrace the general strike in 1910-1911, um, which, by the way, is, is uh, one of the years, I believe, that Missoula elected a socialist mayor and a socialist majority city government. 
Um, Damn, here, here. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we'll, down even more. Yeah, we'll go into that at some other point. But um, anyway, the ultimate goal of the general strike, according to the Industrial Workers of the World Theory, is to displace capitalists and give control over the means of production to workers. In a 1911 speech in New York City, IWW organizer uh, uh, Bill Haywood explained his view of the economic situation and why he believed a general strike was justified. He said the capitalists have wealth, they have money. They invest the money in machinery, in the resources of the earth. They operate a factory, a mine, a railroad, a mill. They will keep that factory running just as long as there are profits coming in. When anything happens to disturb the profits, what do the capitalists do? They go on strike, don't they? They withdraw their finances from that particular mill. They close it down because there are no profits to be made there. They don't care what becomes of the working class. But the working class, on the other hand, has always been taught to take care of the capitalist interests in the property." End quote. Uh, Bill Haywood believed that industrial unionism made possible the general strike. And the general strike made possible industrial democracy. Now there's, uh, I'm just going to pause there, um, industrial unionism is um, a way of organizing workers um, not by what they did necessarily, but where they worked. So in other words, um, uh, in, in, in the case of like a paper mill, um, you have people who are like currently today, they operate the machines, they bring in the wood chips, they you know, clean the facility, they monitor the water. An industrial union would organize all of those workers into one union, right? To have more leverage over the capitalist owner of the, of the enterprise. Um, instead of saying, having a separate union, a trade union for like the machine operator and a trade union for the janitor and a trade, you know, a separate union, you just have one, you have one union. That's a big chunk of labor history right there. We could do shows for a year. Yeah, exactly. And, and the IWW first pioneered that idea, the Industrial Union, and but it was really kind of completed by the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, uh, with the rise of unions like the United Steel Workers and the United <laughs> Auto Workers, who were industrial unions. Um, so, and not trade unions like the building trades tend to be more along not where you worked, but what you did. And that, and they have different, they have different roots. That's a much older kind of, um, that, that they have their roots in the, in the whole apprentice system, you know, uh, right, and the, right. gu the guild system. Back to the guild system. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, anyway, uh, back to what the IWW saw, they said, Bill Hay would believe that industrial unionism made possible the general strike and that the general strike made possible industrial democracy. According to Wobbly theory, the conventional strike is an important but not the only weapon for improving wages, hours, and working conditions for working people. These strikes are also good training to help workers educate themselves about the class struggle and about what it will take to execute an eventual general strike for the purpose of achieving industrial democracy. So in other words, during the final general strike, according to Wobbly Theory, workers would not walk out of their shops, factories, mines, and mills, but would rather occupy their workplaces and take them over. 
Prior to taking action to initiate industrial democracy, workers would need to educate themselves with technical and managerial knowledge in order to operate the industry. The IWW strategy was to use the general strike as a tool to bring democracy to the economy and have workers themselves able and prepared to democratically run their own workplaces? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and there's um, a certain, uh, there, there is, you know, quite a bit of power in this, this theory. And I think that people remember in the, you know, maybe uh, 20 years or so after, you know, the Wobblies were organizing and had, had come up with this theory, it actually was started to be put in practice with the industrial unions. They weren't IWW necessarily, but you know some of these new uh, industrial unions like the United Auto Workers and their occupation of the plant in uh, Flint, Michigan, was very famous. But they, but but it was uh, very well organized, and uh, the uh, United Auto Workers um, did a test run um, actually of of this tactic, right, of this, of this theory in uh, the Studebaker plant in South Bend, Indiana, um, the, oh, yes. the, the year before, and uh, to great effect, right, the, the workers occupied the plant, they weren't able to run the plant quite yet, right, but, um, but I think they were, that's, that's where they were moving toward, right, that's what they wanted to prepare themselves for. Uh, and and then and then when that proved successful in South Bend, they took the auto, United Auto Workers took uh, the, you know their show on the road and made and made a big showdown in Flint, which the workers absolutely uh, were victorious. So um, good strategy, and it was that was the real birth of the you know I mean that was the birth of of a strong United Auto Workers union. So um, there is a, a lot of things to be learned uh, from, from our history. Uh, so, and um, the IWW had laid out a plan for revolutionary change. They went even further than the CIO using the general strike, but other labor groups did not accept this and remained at arm's length at, to the idea of a general strike to this day. Um, general strikes in the U.S. have occurred in St. Louis in 1877, New Orleans in 1892, and again the New Orleans levee strike in 1907 after the failure, after the huge disaster uh, of levee breaking during a flood. Um, there was a general strike in Seattle in 1919, which was very close to home, and Oakland in 1946, right after the war. Perhaps the three most important strikes in U.S. labor history, at least in the 20th century, um, were, um, uh, were general strikes, and they were all organized and conducted in 1934. Uh, the West Coast waterfront strikes, the Minneapolis general strike, and the Toledo, Ohio auto light strike. Uh, were were these strikes and all showed how organized labor was serious about making change. In future shows, we will look at the pivotal 1934 strikes and how their effort is still felt in the current labor movement. I know European labor unions often use a general strike. 
Are there other places in the world where the general strike is used today? Oh my, yes. Uh, most everywhere else, actually, uh, and not here. Um, other countries' labor and democracy movements have adopted the general strike as a tool in their toolbox. For example, in late October 2019, that was last year, in Chile's capital, Santiago, amid a crippling general strike of workers, over a million people, well over 6% of the population, demanded not only the resignation of their billionaire president, Piñera, but an end to neoliberal rule of their country. Um, and likewise, an open-ended general strike, the, the largest strike in French history was last winter um, and in France. And there the issue was the French neoliberal government's proposal to gut the public pension program that workers had fought so hard to win over 40 years ago. R rail and road transport workers, schools and universities, hospitals, and public sector workers were also engaged in the strike at different times. In fact, they used kind of a rolling strike where uh, the transport workers, many of them just struck solidly. They didn't, they, they didn't stop. But hospitals and schools and public services, they would go on strike for a few days and then go back to work. And they would rotate among different sectors um, to express their displeasure at the government's um, withdrawing of the, uh, uh, you know, basically gutting their pension system. Um, and if you remember last year, the Gillette Jaune or the Yellow Vest populist movement, a true populist movement, um, also joined forces with the unions at that time, which is a huge development in France. And of course, the pandemic kind of brought that all to a stop, of course. Um, and last year, general strikes also occurred in India, in Iran, Sudan, Catalonia in Spain, and Hong Kong, among other places. Yeah, in fact, the um, GOP in their convention this year famously used, uh, you know, video from the, uh, you know, strike in Barcelona and called it madness, mayhem, and chaos in the United States. Yeah, yeah, it's, there. there is... Um, as we were covering from last year and through, just before the pandemic, uh, worldwide, I mean, 2019 was uh, a, a major uh, worldwide movement against neoliberalism. I mean, just massive wow. around the world, including the U.S., but uh, other places were much more advanced uh, with that. And yeah. and it's it's become, you know, the pandemic has kind of thrown this back, but all the all that discontent, all the, uh, uh, you know, opposition is, is, is maybe brewing even stronger with this. And we're, you know, uh, as time goes on, we're going to see more and more um, uh, general strikes, I believe, in other places. Not here. <laughs> well, in, in, in any sort of real organized way. Uh, and this is, you know, we'll talk about this, too. Yeah, it reminds me of Jolimai back in the 60s in France. It started as a student strike, and it spread around the world. Right, but yeah. There were a lot of general strikes last year. Right, and there, yes, there were. And I believe that in my, this is my opinion, I'm, I'm editorializing here, that the, the national AFL-CIO should be planning, preparing, organizing, and training union leaders in rank-and-file 
to strategically employ the general strike, whether in cities, regionally, or nationally. This should be a function of the AFL in addition to its lobbying. The labor movement in this country will then have the general strike as a tool in our toolbox as the 99% fight against neoliberalism and creeping fascism. This will take years to accomplish, but the sooner it starts, the better. I'm, you know, if anyone's listening. Um, <laughs> someone has said that the difference between France and the U.S. is that the government fears workers in France. Here, workers fear the government, and I submit that it, that is the difference in having the general strike as a tool in your toolbox. Yeah, no time like the present. Yeah. So, uh, as usual, lots news to cover from this week. What's first in our current news, Mark? Yeah, so um, of course the pandemic is still, it, it, it's getting tiresome, <laughs> but it still is the number one news item. Um, and as we've been saying for months, in the U.S. overall, the number of new daily COVID-19 rates is still expanding, but at a falling rate. So clearly the pandemic is still not under control in the U.S., the economy will not recover until people feel safe enough from the coronavirus and have enough money to spend into the economy. The U.S. is starting to turn the rate of new cases in the right direction, however, starting to bend the curve down but slowly. The U.S. is still the leader in the world of total number of confirmed cases and deaths, but in most every state the rate curve is finally bending down due to mask wearing, social distancing, and frequent hand washing among a substantial part of the population, although it is now the Midwest's turn to see rising rates. The rate of new infections in Montana is rising slowly at an average now of about 118 per day, bringing the state total of active cases as of Friday to around 2,000. The benchmark statistic is the test positivity rate, which is the number of positive test results for COVID-19 as compared to the number of tests given. So it doesn't matter how many tests you give, right? Um, you know, whether it's like intensive testing or, you know, loose testing, um, the positivity rate is, is it's gonna give you a number consistent across the board. Um, That's true. But if it's only testing people that are showing symptoms, you're gonna get some crazy numbers. Right. Well, the, the, the goal actually for this number is 5%, is my understanding, or, or below for a weekly average test positivity rate. Montana this week is above the goal at 5.61%. This is likely due to the usual 10 million out-of-state tourists that flock to Montana with a population of 1 million uh, uh, in the summertime, especially in the summertime. Around June 8th was when Montana's infection rates climbed from nearly zero to the level seen today. And June 7th is shortly after the beginning of the summer season, which is traditionally Memorial Day, end of May. So, um, but that's my own analysis <laughs> that could, you know, uh, be further looked at by others. But uh, by far, the most active cases in Montana are now in Yellowstone, Rosebud, Bighorn, Flathead, and Cascade counties, all at or above 112 active cases. The number of active hospitalizations has risen to 150 in the state, which gives concern about Montana hospitals' capacity to treat people. These figures are according to the Johns Hopkins Center for System Science and Engineering website and the state of Montana. 
Uh, we are certainly nowhere done with this virus yet. It is still at large in the U.S. and spreading. At over 186,000 deaths, the U.S. is still the world leader in COVID-19 deaths. The U.S. accounted for consistently for 22% of all deaths in the world and for 24% of the confirmed cases, all with only 4% of the world's population. Well, I guess that brings up the time in the show when I predictably say, <laughs> that's a grim thing to be exceptional at. Yeah. End quote. <laughs> yep, it is. Um, it is. It still remains basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks, to distance themselves from others, and to frequently wash their hands if we are going to beat this pandemic. Solidarity requires sacrifice, but it is essential. For every person that does not do these precautions, we are that much farther from controlling the virus, achieving herd immunity, and fully reopening the economy. And by the way, despite all the happy talk still in the media about a vaccine around the corner, uh, one that will be safe and effective will absolutely not be seen until next summer. So any talk to the contrary is going to be about a vaccine that's probably not safe and probably not effective. And I'm going to wait until next summer before I get any vaccine. And then I might even wait, <laughs> given all the knuckleheadedness about the vaccines out there. Um, and uh, uh, one further note, um, in an article by Corey Dickstein and Stars and Stripes, published on May 8th, Quote, the updated guidance from the Pentagon does bar from the military service individuals who require hospitalization for complications from the virus. The official said those individuals can still apply for a service-issued waiver to attempt to enter the military, said the official, who was not authorized to speak publicly about the policy and requested anonymity. So an official leak. The initial policy labeling a confirmed history of the coronavirus permanently disqualifying a person for military service was issued to the Military Entrance Processing Command in a memorandum that leaked over social media earlier this summer and was later published by several news organizations. Pentagon officials confirmed the memo's authenticity, but they said it would be updated to avoid the appearance that the military was banning all coronavirus survivors. End quote. So this, uh, thanks again for this tip from uh, Catherine Kanayahu. Uh, and so what is the military worried about with the survivors of COVID-19 that they would possibly permanently bar them from military service? Could it be the emergency, emergen, emerging permanent disability of some survivors, especially heart conditions? Apparently, mm -hmm. um, could it be that the military believes that COVID-19 can impart serious threats to a person much later than the original infection? There is much we don't know about this very dangerous virus. I'm afraid to ask, but I must. Mark, how are we doing on the economic front? Any good news? Uh, no, none whatsoever. And in fact, uh, yeah, and I and I. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> well, it's so predictable, right? I mean, it's, uh, over these past many weeks, we've been covering the unemployment rates, the missed housing payment rates, and the business bankruptcy rates in great detail. They are all bad. They are not, by and large, getting better and are very dangerous for everyone's well-being. And Tom 
Congress is still on vacation? Yes, they are. And these are supposed to be the best political leaders in our country, yet have shown sheer incompetence and worse, a callousness to the struggle of Americans who are desperate for economic relief, which is probably at least half of all Americans. Uh, the professional managerial class in this case, despite their advanced education, their wealth, and their political victories, have shown to be incapable or unwilling to act in the national interest at a time we need them to do so most. Our political elites are a profound failure, and no relief from their failure is in sight. Well, as soon as I turn around the framed diplomas above my desk, <laughs> I'll ask, what else have we? Well, you're not part of that. You're, you're not that influential, Jim. <laughs> Um, so anyway, uh, just to report, last Monday, uh, the Missoula City Council rejected an organized effort to rethink the police incarceration, incarceration system for the uh, Missoula uh, City Police and voted to add another so-called business improvement district police officer to the force. This officer would deal with complaints from shop owners and others in the downtown area. Only Julie Merritt of Ward 6 had the courage and the foresight uh, to... Uh, vote to reallocate the money from the new officer to other social services such as a mental health crisis team and to an affordable housing trust fund. In response to pressure, however, the council did allocate more money to these social services than what had appeared in the mayor's original budget. While it was a defeat for the 1700 for Liberation and allied groups such as DSA, many felt that this work is just beginning and we're making plans to lay a foundation for further change in Missoula. That's too bad, but these kinds of things don't change on the first attempt. Yeah, exactly, Jim. And the proponents of change carried themselves admirably, and there are enough people interested in taking the next steps that appears to be a viable effort. Speaking of viable effort, what's next? Well, this is the Labor Day weekend. Happy Labor Day, Jim. And... Um, <laughs> and and if people haven't noticed, we have a mostly labor-themed show. Okay, I'm all set to go. What's first? All right. Well, to start, um, we look at why is workers' overall share of the economy shrinking and thus making workers less well-off? Well, there are many reasons given for this. Automation, the growth in international trade, the decline of union power, or outsourcing. Uh, however, Addie Gaskell, writing in the September 2nd edition of Forbes magazine, offers another reason, market monopolies. Um, she says, or she writes, a, a common refrain among economists in recent years is that the fruits of the economy's success have gone to the owners of capital rather than workers. With this growing inequality, a major theme of Thomas Piketty's wildly popular work, Capital in the 21st Century. New research from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology sets out to understand precisely why the labor share of the gross domestic product has fallen from 67% in 1980 to just 59% today. Central to their theory is the outsized success of the so-called superstar firms, whose progress has played a bigger role in the shift then factors such as automation, the growth in international trade, the decline of union power, or outsourcing as proposed by other economists. 
The discontent from economists has mainly arisen due to the remarkable stability of labor's share of gross domestic product throughout the 20th century. Indeed, it was something that John Maynard Keynes famously referred to as a miracle. Um, so uh, uh, what I, and I want to make a comment about that. Um, you know, if you recall that um, right after, uh, during the 30s and during World War II, labor really started to um, make huge gains in all kinds of industries. Uh, partly uh, thanks to the rise of the industrial unions and their occupational plants, like we looked at the you know Flint sit-down strike, and the the general strikes that happened in 1934, um, and that helped uh, Roosevelt and Congress to pass protections, basic legal protections for workers to protect workers' rights to organize, and those are human rights; those aren't rights granted, and they're constitutional rights, too. They're not granted, you know, just by the, by the Congress, right? And so, uh, and constitutional right is, uh, it, the foundation is on the First Amendment, um, the right of association. So um, unions are just association of workers, and that's, uh, they, they're guaranteed a right to exist. Um, and but there was a reaction, and one unions were really strong coming after World War II. Uh, there was the Red Scare, and the Red Scare, uh, you know, the McCarthy era, had um, hit the unions first, and where uh, leadership got rid of all their great organizers, uh, um, who were mostly communists and socialists, right? And uh, got rid of them, and then made deal made the sort of the classic deal with with capital at that point, right? So that the the unions would not seek uh, revolutionary change, like a lot of the unions were seeking in the 30s and 40s, and instead would have this labor peace with capitalists, right? And said, well. You know, if if we can, and, and which actually was very successful, and this is what Keynes is remarking upon, was that all the gain, every single gain in productivity of workers uh, from the end of World War II right up until, you know, the end of the 60s or beginning of the 70s, uh, every, every increase in productivity, uh, you know, capital was, would, Gay, you know, basically wasn't fighting all that much, uh, passing that along in the form of wage increases, and but that came to a crashing halt, you know, in the in the 70s and in 1980s, and when when capital basically ripped up that agreement with the uh, you know more docile labor movement and. Um, you know, and then started, uh, you know, counterattacking the the docile labor movement, who had not had, you know, all these great organizers looking at more fundamental change. Uh, that's that's my version of of you know the the labor piece that that existed for and was remarkable that created the middle class, right? It was it was a, a remarkable time, but it was it it is proven to be the exception to the rule. Yeah, you know, that was a remarkable 90 seconds there, Mark. I think you said that you pretty much outlined economic history of the last couple of centuries. Um, it's interesting that Red Scare, you know, original version was in the 20s, 
directly following World War One, when right. it was an existential threat to everybody. Right. You know, patricians and plebes both. Right. And labor was um, was mollified and pacified to make sure the arms of war were were delivered in a timely way. And then they start walking it back with all this stuff about nasty reds in the 20s. Yeah. And we, and we had a predictable economy dominated by the 1% and monopolies. Um, then Red Scare 2.0 happened directly after the Second World War, which, again, was another existential threat to everybody. Yeah. And we have McCarthyism. Right. You know, and, and there's there seems to be uh, there, there are some other parallels here too. So, um, the uh, uh, clearly the labor movement in the teens was was much more about trying to overthrow capitalism, right? And um, oh, okay. and and it well it was very explicit, right? The 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 socialists and the communists really didn't exist at that time, but the socialist movement was really really very strong and like i said you know in 1910 missoula elected a socialist mayor and a majority city i mean a majority out of two others right it was just the three of them that were the city council as it were um but it was majority socialist for a couple of years and of all things they were known for uh reforming the police <laughs> um so uh but um Good yeah, so that during that time, I mean, and Missoula was not unusual in Montana or throughout the West, right? It was it, this yeah, was, indeed. Butte was, was up there too. Yeah, Butte and, and other towns in Montana had this, but it, it, it at the end of 1918 was also the end of the Spanish flu pandemic, and yeah. and so uh, and you know at the end of World War One when. Uh, you know, basically the uh, the Russian troops stopped fighting the the Germans, as it were, um, and they started. You know, they they completed the a revolution there at home. Um, that certainly put in a scare. Uh, you know, with capitalists worldwide, and and they sent yeah. a, they they funded and a, we spent troops to assist the white Russians. Uh, that that's right, exactly. There was a. There was a lot, right, there was a lot of military intervention in Russia at the time. And the end of the pandemic, right, all kind of contributed to this Red Scare. Well, you look at today um, that, you know, I don't know if we're at the end of the pandemic. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. But, uh, you know, and here we have uh, great tumult uh, around the world against the neoliberal capitalist order. And including in this country too, and then, um, and we have you know the, the 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 you know Trump campaign and the Republicans trying to play that card again, that red scare card, right? And honestly, you know they're going to have a little success, but they're not going to have anywhere near the success as they had, I think, in the uh, 1920s or in the 1950s. Um, in playing that card, and and make no mistake about it, it's a deliberate kind of thing, right? This is, you you may have some true believers like Joe McCarthy, kind of you know kind of being out front, but lots of you know lots of others were behind the scenes, cynically, you know, media people, politicians, 
you know, uh, capitalists. They were all behind the scenes really egging this on and because it served their purposes of neutering a labor movement that was very strong. And it was at that time, too, that the Taft-Hartley Act was passed, which uh, really, really hamstrung uh, labor. And so, you know, uh, that was perhaps... uh, Perhaps there was reasons to make that accommodation with capital at that time, but has proven to be, um, you know, right now it's it's a failed it was a failed uh, uh, strategy on the part of unions. So it's time. time I think Labor Day. It's time to come to grips with how that was a that was a bad strategy. I mean, it may, and it had some benefits to it for sure, but. Uh, right now, the middle class is disappearing, and and, and that was not uh, something that was a permanent feature, which I think maybe a lot of union people felt it might have been. Uh, and so we're, we're back now in getting the middle class is disappearing, and all we've got is the working class and the 1%. But, you know, we're, we're back to go, um, as it were. Yeah, we sure are. So, uh, so, yeah, there. Uh, the monopolies such as we find in high tech, healthcare, social media, mainstream media, meat production, airlines, retail, don't share the increases in productivity to its workers. Right. Because it just plain can. And as you mentioned before, it, um, it's so neat to see data that says where the disconnect happens is when you have an employer that becomes the predominant participant in an entire industry. Right. And that's, you you know, there are lots of numbers that can say lots of different things, but it sounds like Goldstein is saying, yeah, it's irrefutable. Yeah, and I think... And it's just like the United States was in the 1870s and the 1880s. You know, all of these extractive industries and transportation industries consolidated, and then you had wages being chipped away. You had rampant deflation. Right. Yeah. Uh, Capital accumulation, you know. Yeah. And, 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 so, what do you think Labor Day is going to be like this year? <laughs> well, um, so, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think while we're looking at some of the pieces here of, of uh, you know, these lessons from the past are, 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 are really good to learn in that um, back in the day, back when the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed, for instance, back in the first part of the 20th century, it was, it, there were two kind of factors that really uh, helped bring that about. One was a very active and organizing and going, you know, uh, thinking politically, not just their own wages and hours and working conditions, um, but a labor movement that was actually engaged in looking at a bigger picture, right? And saying that, yeah, as, uh, uh, in fact, some argue that in the, um, some labor people in the 1950s were arguing that we wanted more concentration because we'll organize them and we'll be able to control the economy um, that much better through our organizing, which had, you know, I, I, th- there were uh, lots of people that believed that in the 50s and, and maybe even into the 60s. Uh, however, 
Um, you know, the other part of that equation, a strong labor movement needs, you know, people in government who can pass uh, laws to restrict, um, you know, monopolies. And that's what, that's what antitrust is. And uh, clearly it was, um, you know, from this article that Eddie Gaskell had written in Forbes, um, uh, that, it, it, you know, the concentration in each of these firms, whether it's manufacturing, wholesale, retail, utility, services, transportation, and finance sectors, including, uh, you know, payroll data on payroll output and total employment, that th there is just a relatively small number of highly competitive firms have dominated each of these markets. And in retail, for instance, the leading four companies had previously accounted for just 15% of sales in 1981. But by 2011, this had mushroomed to 30%. And I will guarantee you, after this year, that's going to rise, you know, even more. Um, so, you know, all 30% of all retail in 2011 uh, was uh, uh, controlled by just a few large players like Walmart and Amazon. Um, uh, yeah. You know, so similar. Absolutely. Yep. And you know, it's easy to forget that it was Benjamin Harrison back in 1890 that signed the Sherman Antitrust Act. So this has been an identified uh, problem for a long, long, long time. Yes. And it was, uh, see, I don't want to get ahead of myself a little bit here. Um, oh, please do. But, um, so, uh, you know, as you said before, um, I mean, each, each of these big industrial sectors has become more and more concentrated. And, uh, it, and it is the, uh, you know, the decline in labor share of the domestic product, the gross domestic product is, uh, it, it's not the same in each industry, but it's changing primarily, this, this report, you know, has found it's changing primarily at those businesses that have come to dominate their respective markets. And because those, those firms are dominating their markets, it's shifted the entire economy. Um, so, um, you know, if you uh, look at, um, you know, uh, what monopolies have done in, like, in you gave the name, you, you listed them all. I mean, high tech is one or social media, right? Uh, they, they control those, those industries control a huge part of their, it's highly concentrated. So, you know, the Bill Gates and the, and the, uh, uh, you know, and, and their ilk um, are, uh, you know, kind of the new, you know, uh, John D. Rockefellers, right? And, uh, and and we hear all, we always hear about, well, what does Bill Gates think about world health, you know? <laughs> um, as if he's some sort of expert or, uh, but he's only listened to because he's, you know, got billions and billions of dollars and has, you know, created a network of influence um, in, the me in the media, in the economy, in the, in politics, uh, to basically steer things in the direction he would like to see things steered. And so this is the problem with, with monopoly. This is the problem with concentration of wealth. Yeah, um, absolutely. Kind of reminds me of how Henry Ford went to Europe to solve, to 
get a truce in World War One. Yeah, right, right. Like, I was a guy that couldn't even figure out the wheelbase on his first car, so he wouldn't have to, you know, tear down the wall in the garage to get it out. <laughs> now going to be the, um, you know, enabler of world peace. Right, right, Believe. right. And, it, and it's... I'm so glad that you brought up the um, news distribution mm-hmm. and collection industry, the media. Right. Is, there's an example of how a proud, proud, proud profession only has a few stellar players for, you know, well-heeled sources like the uh, New York Times and the Washington Post. And that's an industry where labor is being abused relentlessly. Yes. You know, every, every day you read, oh, this paper consolidated with this paper, and they're going to fire all the reporters. Right, right. Or, or they come, like Jeff Bezos, right? He comes in and re- rescues, you know, the Washington Post. And, um, but, you know, one person, the concentration in the mass media is, is, uh, is worth, worse than even Jeff Bezos, right? So, like, Disney. I agree completely. Di- Di- yeah, Disney operates. And, and this is why we operate this radio show. <laughs> this, is, this is to try to get some other voices other than the monopoly media voices, which currently, I mean, this is one thing that people um, have to be very cautious about. The mainstream media is pretty unified, not entirely. I mean, Fox, there is Fox News, but most of the mass media is pretty unanimously uh, and unfairly, I would say, I, uh, uh, many times unfairly uh, critical of Trump. And um, but, you know, this, this is not the American people speaking. OK, this is the oligarch speaking. And and so uh, and, and it's allowed they've been allowed to I, I'd say it, it sometimes, you know, I have to give Trump supporters some, uh, you know, a nod to them that sometimes the mass media is very unfair to Trump and they picture him. I mean, he, I, I don't, I'm not a Trump supporter. I think, you know, he's uh, a disaster, but they play, kind of play into their hands in some way. And I think this is the, 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 the severe mistrust of the mass media among people, le- the, the, you know, the, uh, uh, the monopoly media is so widespread and is so profound that it, it's almost like, um, they're they're spoiling what the truth is, right? And so, um, and I think it's really the more they sort of dump on Trump, the more that Trump's base is saying, "See, we told you, you know, th- this is a conspiracy, and we're going to support him even more." So um, that's why I think Trump is even. I mean, that in an extremely weak candidate in Biden, um, that uh, is why Trump even has a chance to win re-election. Yeah, I know, and there's so much ink has been spilled on this topic, but uh, I agree with you completely, and I'll say that um, Trump is the symbol of people that have been disenfranchised by neoliberalism and the factory job they had a generation ago and allowed them to send their kids to college and take a family vacation is now... You know, three or four jobs that don't that are not full time at convenience stores. 
No, no benefits. Entry level jobs, and so they see Trump as a savior. Well, yes, and and I I would just say that, you know, the the entry level job, uh, you know, I, I know you didn't mean it this way, but the entry level job trope is more than fifty percent of all jobs in Missoula are so called entry level jobs. Right. I mean, no, absolutely. And, 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 and so often, entry level jobs become the same job you have for decades. Right. And and I think a lot of people who were who really benefited, which is a lot of people benefited from being middle class, from you know the union movement and the grand bargain with capital, um, yes. lose sight of the fact that. Uh, those middle class jobs have uh, largely disappeared. I mean, there's we still got pockets of them. Thanks, you know, like uh, you know, teachers are underpaid, but at least you know it's not as bad as it had been. Uh, for for an example, um, and thanks to their unions. I mean, if they didn't have unions, it would be you know it, it would be they would be <laughs> they would be low wage jobs. But right now in Missoula, um, at least fifty four percent of all jobs in the Missoula Valley are low wage so called entry level jobs, and they are permanent jobs, as you say, Jim. So yeah, and it's never meant to be that way. You know, often you get in conversations with people that say. Oh, well, so-and-so works as a burger flipper. Well, that's just a job for teenagers, so they have, right. you know, spending money. Right. Well, no, you know, it's a job for single moms. Yeah. It's a job, it's one of the three or four jobs that, um, you know, Stosh right. or Pedro got after they were, after the factory disappeared, and that's that's their livelihood. Right. That's that's exactly right. So, and and I think, but I think that using that that term entry level, you know, jobs, because I've I've heard it a lot over my, you know, my career, and it really betrays a lack of understanding of what the real economy is today. Yeah, and absolutely. I, and Thank I, you for saying that. Yeah, I think, and I think that's just, um, I, it was an opportunity to bring that up. So. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who can stay home and watch the kids while you know dad is off? Right, right. Doing dad things at the office. Yep, yep. That's an Aussie and Harriet world that's long gone. Right. If 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 it actually ever was here, but yes, it's long gone now. <laughs> um, so. Um, well, and, and we have one other, uh, one other source of information about monopolies, as we were talking. Oh, yes! Um, and that's uh, author and radio show host Tom Hartman um, has written a new book, The Hidden Histories of Monopolies. And he, in the book, he mourns the loss of Main Street businesses that used to inhabit downtowns, many downtowns, and which supported local culture. Um, he attributed uh, to President Ronald Reagan... Uh, in in Reagan's successful quest to implement neoliberalism in the U.S. Uh, by Reagan's refusing to enforce the Sherman Antitrust Act uh, during the era of large corporations taking over small businesses, uh, which ran wild when when the justice when the Justice Department under Reagan stopped enforcing antitrust, and so during the pandemic. 
We have also uh, covered the the massive loss of small businesses, not at the hands of looters in the street, but far more at the hands of the looters within the federal government and large corporations. With the concentration of the economy in fewer and fewer hands, the monopolists are able to charge almost any price they choose for the consumer. So Hartman calculates every American family pays an extra $5,000 a year in ex excessive prices to these monopolies, just just that. Isn't that astounding? Because that's a that's real money. Right. That's a, a lot of people. That's a that's he he calls that a tax to the corporations, right? To the to the monopoly corporations. And, and the corporations that generally find a way to avoid paying taxes altogether. So right. it's win win. It's win win. And you you know, ne and, and neoliberalism I now I really feel beleaguered. Um, <laughs> American does to pretend that there's a, there's a real contest with any fairness in this country. <laughs> yes, that's very well put, Jim. I, I appreciate <laughs> that, um, and and hopefully that's true. So, um, but um, well, and and to to kind of move on to that theme of sports, um, we have uh, uh, Mike Elk who publishes the website Payday Report. Um, and he's been documenting wildcat strikes since the beginning of the pandemic and has listed over 900 of them across the U.S. Uh, that's pretty much unprecedented in our lifetime. Um, and then and Elk also reports on September 2nd that, quote, the NFL is slated to start on September 10th. However, it appears that the players may go on a wildcat strike and boycott the games in support of Black Lives Matter. Today, the NFL appeared to give their legal blessing for players to break their union contract and refuse to play games on September 10th. Quote, they, they all have a choice, an individual choice and right to either sit out or protest, however one would characterize it. End quote. NFL executive Troy Vincent said during the players' meeting today, Quote, my personal discussions with the players have been many and frankly with the club ownership and coaches but in particular the players, and it's really time for us to dig into when we talk about police reform, and it's really around the era, area of accountability, and how can we leverage from our office, our governmental affairs office. The players want to see us leveraging the influence to hold officers that are bad officers to be held accountable, end quote. All this comes on the heels of NBA basketball, Major League Baseball, and National Hockey League players, of, of all folks, refusing to play in a strike in support of police reform after the murder of the man in Milwaukee. Jacob? Yes, and speaking of Milwaukee and Kenosha. Oh, yes, yes, that, that, that's NFL. what I meant was Kenosha, yeah. <laughs> yeah, either way, you know, it could have been Milwaukee. I've lived in Milwaukee and in no other city in America, and I've lived all over the place. Did I feel the ennui and anger that people of color lived every day in? Um, I was really uncomfortable there. Yeah. Yep. yep. And, you know, there are going to be a lot of uncomfortable people in the great state of Wisconsin because um, to you and I and many others, sport is sport. But Lambeau Field is, is the Hajj. It is Mecca for the 
people in northeastern Wisconsin finding any reason to wake up in the morning have any significance in their lives. They spend their whole life hoping that one day they will be that, you know, short camera uh, turn as the game leads into a commercial and they'll be recognized by family members and other right. people in the community. Yeah. So to be, to be. hope that something is done. So, so you're, so you're saying that, that a lot of fans want to be the sort of notorious cheesehead for, uh, for that week. <laughs> um, yeah, well, everybody needs a reason to live, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, people, I've, yeah, I've met Packer fans. I'm a Bears fan, so I, I can, you know, yeah. my life has meaning. Well, and and it looks like though September tenth will not, you know, the uh, the players have decided not to play. So uh, we'll see. About, that's just a heads up for people hoping September tenth is going to provide a relief. But this is important, and you know, and it's actually uh, they. I will say this about the, uh, you know, the sports unions at this time. Hearing the discussion on sports radio right so i'm i'm a baseball fan really um i don't care all that much for football but um it, it's okay but i you know i'm i'm not a fanatic but 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 listening to yeah so absolutely baseball and um the uh hearing the i i have heard discussions on so, uh, so I'm a San Francisco Giants fan, and um, listening to, you know, the the home radio station for you know for the team, and hearing the commentators talk about all of this, and about the the Giants and the Dodgers took part, um, refused to play one game, um, and uh, uh, you know, in support of you know the Black Lives Matter in Kenosha. And, um, and, you know, to hear the discussion among these sports casters, right, which they typically, you know, um, a lot of them don't really speak very informally about unions, but, but, but they, but they were, but it, it was, there was some people who were like, this is what, this is absolutely what the unions need to be doing. And they were excited at the prospect, which which kind of shocked me, and it really kind of shows how um, disturbing that a lot of people are about these police murders, and 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 people feeling like uh, you know, and add that into everything else: the middle class disappearing, the the badly handled pandemic, the even worse handled of the economy by Congress, uh, and you know. We are all living through this existential crisis. I mean, things are literally falling apart in front of our eyes, and and the the one so- place of solace that some people find is in sports. That I I think it's so admirable, and they're showing real leadership, real labor leadership, which no, we which we need more of. Thank you for saying that because I agree with you completely, and it just shows what our unions are about. You know, it would be easy to paint athletes as um, hollow, self-serving um, thugs out to make a whole bunch of money right. in the best way they know how. But through BLM, then it, it, it's shown the organization that represents the players, it has a social conscience. It's 
feels it has a role in society that it must serve. Right. And I and I think unions generally need to get out of the just servicing the membership um, and just negotiating contracts, wages, hours, and working conditions only for their own members. Um, in our interview, John Anderchak uh, brings up um, the, uh, 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 you know, the organization, it's now an organization called Bargaining for the Common Good, and it's union, it's unions and union members saying, look, yes, we are going to bargain our own wages, our own working conditions, our own benefits. However, we also know we're a part of a larger community, and we will tackle some of the bigger issues of the community as best we can. And that's exactly what the, you know, this NFL, you know, uh, leader, you know, from the, from the, you know, owner side, right, saying, yeah, you know, this is, this, you know, as a society, we need to use what leverage we have to uh, make, try to force these changes, try to make these very desperately needed changes. And so, um, and, you know, there are some unions that are doing this, you know, beyond the sports unions, but not enough, and and most of it is still kind of mired in the old, the 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 old system of, of the the grand bargain with capital, and that is we we'll keep our head out of anything beyond, you know, our own self interest, and um, and not use our power, not build our power, to do general strikes. <laughs> yeah, and interestingly, where unions are still working, like in Europe. It's written into, you know, corporate uh, rules that um, labor will have a role in, um, you know, high-level decision-making. Right, exactly. Notably in Germany. Right. You know, unions could first prove that they will serve public interest and the common good even when it doesn't line their pockets, that they aren't merely right. uh, a negotiating tool for better living conditions, that they, that they and what, care about the society they, they perform for. And, and I'd say that... And then, then the story gets told. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I think that business unions now, which are the ones that just take care of their members are benefiting from these other unions that are trying to um, organize outside of that box and trying to bargain for the common good. Like the Chicago teachers have, in two two successive strikes, have bargained for affordable housing for their houseless, um, you know, students. So, and which is yeah. which is very non-traditional, but it, it it really helps build goodwill for unions in the community. I think the business unions aren't doing that uh, so much, and they you know often they'll they'll be big contributors to United Way, but that's kind of that's the 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 yeah. long the long and short of it, right? Which is fine, yeah. which is fine, but it's really not enough because we need we need fighting organizations to fight off neoliberalism, to fight off fascism, to fight off monopolies, right? And which monopolies arise very naturally within neoliberalism, um, despite despite the worship of the markets, by the way. Um, that, that neoliberalism has set up the most 
uh, unmarket situation where just a few, uh, you know, few companies will, you know, come out on top and destroy whatever market there is, and then they'll, you know, then they control prices and and wages and do whatever they want. Um, yeah, and make five thousand dollars a year on average right. in American household. Yeah, and so and so unions have got to get. You know, instead of riding on the backs of these uh, of the Chicago Teachers Union or the Los Angeles Teachers Union and other unions that are working to build, uh, you know, com uh, you know common good with popular forces, you know, in society, uh, you can't sit on the fence anymore because um, there's going to be. You know, there, there, there's reckonings coming, right? And and yes, I th- yes, and, yes. and I think that uh, you know, if unions aren't you know trying to build themselves up into organizing unions, right? Instead of just business and help and and participate like the the you know the National Football Players Association, they're participating in a social movement, in a political social movement, right? Um, that is does not necessarily affect them directly economically as a union. Um, we need way more of that, and we need, as I said earlier, not only that. That helps provide the platform for uh, for the you know AFL to start you know uh, you know planning and training and organizing yeah. for for either you know local general strikes or national general strikes. That is absolutely job number one, in my opinion. Yeah, and I and in the you know in these COVIDiated times, the teachers are an outstanding example of how they are addressing the issues that affect their ability to do their job and serve society. Exactly, they're talking about uh, you know we need to have this kind of home environment to facilitate effective learning. And we need to have a certain level of health in the classroom. Um, you know, they get to work off the endlessly long checklist of things that COVID is destroying preconceptions on and forcing us to look at how we want to run our society in broad terms. So, you know, well, teachers are yeah. a great thing to talk about. Right. Well said. Well like said. Reopening schools. Yeah. And we're going to get to that in just a second, but um, but but first, I've got a uh, Mike Elk also reports in his payday report on September first um, uh, uh, about uh, what's coming out of Louisville, Kentucky, where over thirty eight hundred General Electric appliance workers voted to authorize a strike, with ninety nine percent of the union voting in favor of it. Now there's some good organizing going on, and I oh my god. You know, I'll bet you that's an uh, yeah that's a historic United Electricals uh, union with the union's contract set to expire on Sunday this coming Sunday tomorrow workers could be on the street in Louisville as soon as Labor Day this Monday some workers at the plant make as little as fourteen dollars an hour during the pandemic GE appliances saw a surge in home appliance orders as homebound consumers focused on home improvement projects. Yet the IUE CWA that represents workers at the plant say that so far the company hasn't done enough to share the profits with workers at the plant. Quote, do I feel like I need a raise? Yes, I do, said 59-year-old GE worker Jerome Ingram uh, as he spoke with the Louisville Courier-Journal. 
He said further, I like my job. I just want what's coming to me, end quote. Yeah, so true. And yet another example of COVID. Right. <laughs> the payday for newsletter. Yes, well, in uh, again, from, from Mike Elk's payday report, um, uh, COVID has set off a new round of union organizing within Amazon as scores of employees have started wildcat strikes at Amazon locations across the country. The company is so worried about union organizing that they are attempting to hire two intelligence analysts to track union activity. The company recently posted two job listings for analysts that can keep an eye on sensitive and confidential topics, quote, including labor organizing threats against the company, end quote. Amazon is looking to hire an intelligence analyst and a senior intelligence analyst for its global security operations, global intelligence program. Man, it sounds like it's a small government, doesn't it? Um, the, the or not even such a small government. Uh, the team that's responsible for physical and corporate security operations such as insider threats and industrial espionage. The job ads list several kinds of threats such as, quote, protests, geopolitical crises, conflicts impacting operation operations, but focuses on organized labor in particular, mentioning it three times in one of the listings, end quote. Hmm, that is dark and sinister. Yeah. Um, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I, I thought I was reading, I was back in the Navy, I saw so many acronyms. <laughs> yeah. uh, there you go. I wonder if we have any <laughs> aircraft carriers yet. Yeah. <laughs> you just well, already went carrier task force in the modern world. Well, so, and, and Jim, I think what you hit upon is, is, is something very interesting as these large monopoly corporations are beginning more and more to uh, look to the military in terms of their structure. Oh, yes. Speaking as a former Boeing employee, uh, yeah. <laughs> you touched a nerve. Right. So um, this is the beginning of fall, and there are many uh, schools reopening at this time, and <clears throat> both uh, K-12 and colleges. Um, from Mark's 21 U.S. website, one of the largest school districts in the country averted a K-12 strike. Um, on September 1st, plans for a strike authorization vote in New York City public schools were canceled as the city backed down on its school reopening plans. The city reached a, a decision with the American Federation of Teachers Union to delay in-person classes until September 21st, prepare school buildings, and set up a monthly program of selective COVID-19 tests. The MORE rank and file caucus, I'm not sure what MORE stands for, uh, who had been building grass, it's a caucus within the union, with the AFT union, Build, had been building grassroots support for sick outs and the strike vote, welcomed the delay, but condemned the backroom deal, so-called backroom deal between the union and the city. Teachers in Moore have continued concerns over school ventilation upgrades, plans for safe school lunches and packed cafeterias, and cuts to school nursing, and they want a more universal testing schedule. The Moore caucus continues to demand no full reopening of in-person schools until 14 days of no new cases, 
financial support, and real childcare options for families, end quote. So you see there's a, a bargaining for the common good, uh, child care for the families of, of their students. I think so, yeah. It's, yeah, it's your social justice caucus, more or less. Okay. Um, <laughs> no pun intended. It, so, is it my cue to say, ask, what about colleges and universities? Well, as reported from the same Marks 21 U.S. site, quote, during August, campus workers have taken part in several protests and actions on college campuses across the country, calling attention to their health concerns about COVID-19 as students return back to campus. At large public universities in Texas, Florida, and North Carolina, of all places, right? Uh, not known for labor hotbeds, uh, really. Uh, and uh, uh, in other colleges, teachers have resisted administration efforts to bring back many students to the classrooms and dorms that produce tuition and housing revenues. On August 28th, union workers at Georgia College staged a die-in against the college's willful negligence alleged willful negligence during a COVID surge. Staff lay in the grass six feet apart with signs saying, I can't teach if I'm dead, and we don't want our students to die. More than 800 had signed on an online petition for virtual learning. There have been 450 new cases in students who have returned to campus since the week of August 17th, and some professors have half their students in quarantine. The action was part of the United Campus Workers of Georgia's statewide campaign against forced campus reopenings. The state flagship University of Georgia had their own die-in earlier this year. And on August 6, students and staff collaborated on a die-in at the University of North Carolina, noting that over 100 students had already been infected and protesting plans to call students back to campus on August 10th which the Orange County Public Health Department had advised against. On August 31st, students in Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo held protests against the lack of safety plans and calling for online learning. And on August 18th, union workers at the University of Maryland took part in a protest car caravan. Union workers were nervous working in proximity with groups of students not wearing masks. American Federation of State, uh, County, and Municipal Employees, Local 3, or AFSCME Local 3, had previously won mandatory testing for those returning to campus and now want regular ongoing testing guaranteed. After the August reopening at the City Colleges of Chicago, faculty threatened to strike if they didn't see safety improvements. They were partly inspired by Chicago public school teachers whose threat changed the city's policy. While this quote, uh, this is from CCCTU President Tony Johnston, uh, while the strike itself would be illegal, if our members decide it's necessary, we will do so, end quote. It's coming to America first. The cradle of the best and of the worst. It's here they got the range and the machinery for change And it's here they got the spiritual thirst It's here the family's broken and it's here the lonely say That the heart has got to open in a fundamental way
coming to the USB. Welcome back. This is Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. And you are listening on KFGM, Missoula Community Radio, 105.5 Low Power FM in the Missoula Valley and 105.5 KFGM.org worldwide. And we are so pleased uh, to have again on the show today uh, John Andrichak of Labor Lines from Northern Idaho. And uh, John, a uh, former resident of Montana and uh, also a member of the Laborers' Union and uh, activists within uh, uh, the DSA in the Palouse. So welcome to Voice of the People, John. Thanks, Mark, and uh, I appreciate it. Yep, I uh, lived in Montana, uh, spent some time in Missoula back in the good old days, um, <laughs> and we still feel like we're expats with Montana. We're following the, the 2020 election, all of us, our, our daughters and all. So again, thanks, Mark. You know, we collaborate uh, with your help. We have Labor Lines Facebook group going, 3,100 members in just over a year, uh, truly international. And uh, so uh, why don't start here and speak about what workers need to do <clears throat> right now. I'm going to borrow your phrase and that we, we have to learn to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, social media is like technology uh, in this way, uh, Mark. It's great, except when it isn't. Yeah. And you and I have seen too many times when uh, people uh, don't talk to each other well. And one thing I would say is, uh, it's, you know, it's like old school, man, you know, uh, there's, there's, if you don't have something good to say, if you're not able to listen, um, uh, then um, disengage, um, you know, both ways, you know, just don't don't go down that rabbit hole. Social media for workers is a good tool. I feel uh, thanks to you and others um, helping with labor lines, you know, uh, we've gotten some good discussions going. We've gotten a lot of information disseminated, uh, but uh, there's a few times we had to uh, kind of get in the trenches and, um, you know, we're not um, uh, tolerating uh, the trash talk and all. So workers need to learn to talk to each other, be it on Facebook, more importantly in my sense, uh, is face-to-face at the workplace. Um, 
if a person is uh, motivated, interested in advancing labor, advancing workers, uh, there's no better place, obviously, you know, the than their workplace. Uh, but a workplace, as the democratic socialists call it, is the is the broadest popular front. People come from every background, every objective and subjective experience to the workplace, and it's to be the listener that's uh, going to be in the best spot to uh, move forward. You know, you 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 said said that very well, John, because. Um, there is so much contention on social media, right? And uh, and it's real easy to uh, pretend, I guess, and maybe because we're from rural areas, right? Montana, Idaho, uh, that it, it's, uh, you know, I find it disconcerting that people can just, I mean, I was, <laughs> people can just call you names and think they can get away with it, right? As if you're not their neighbor or their coworker or, you know, that you sh- you cohabit the same country right or the same planet even and uh i think that it's part i mean uh, we've just had long discussions about neoliberalism before but i i think it's kind of uh, a a symptom uh, uh, that uh, people um, feel so frustrated and disempowered right Uh, in in their politics in the job and Whatever that it, it's either you glom onto the, the team, right? Whether it's Team R or Team D, and kind of like negate everybody else, or uh, you just like it's you against the world, right? So, and, and which which means that you you know um, in in you know the only way you get power as a worker is through a group, and if you can't talk with people. Who share diff- who are on different teams, perhaps on that sort of disempowered political level, uh, then then there's no hope for you to really rise above and grab a hold of what really binds us together, and and that's not Team R or Team D. It's in my opinion, it's really about the issues like uh, you know, uh, you know, respect for workers on the job, or an end to monopoly corporatism. That kind of thing is really, I think, the thing that binds us uh, more together. And if we can't talk about that, well, then all is lost, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. Then we got my big Ben chiming going there. Mark, <laughs> you pick that up. But you know, you're right. We've talked in length about neoliberalism. Um, you know, uh, I feel optimistic about that in a sense is that more people are recognizing the phrase, the term, and looking at it. But, uh, you know, neoliberalism, uh, some of the more academics might say it's, you know, they financialized the entire economy, but I think you and I agree they financialized humanity. Yeah. And the worker role, the human role here is to de-financialize humanity. And we do that by recognizing uh, our common humanity. I come from that the best I can from my faith, but I also recognize that it's certainly a common thread in humanism teaching uh, that that is not tied to religion or a sect also. Uh, So it's so fundamental to humanity that uh, in a sense it's amazing that it's taken such hold as this financialization. But, Mm -hmm. But going 
into what workers need to do, I would say that's the first step is to recognizing our humanity, recognizing our common cause, uh, uh, stepping it up a bit perhaps to more uh, nuts and bolts is uh, if you're at a workplace, uh, and all workplaces, in my opinion, we all need unions. Mm-hmm. You, know, I, you know, I got family members, they'll talk about, well, I got a paycheck, but they said, don't cash it. And I said, mm. I said, you want to find <laughs> out what you, you know, and my, my, my uh, locals in the trades, it's like, yeah, well, they call me back when I can't cash it and I'll be back at work, you know. But I say, everyone needs a union, uh, but I know it's hard to be the one that steps up and, and start organizing it because uh, we're so unprotected in the United States. But if, if there's a movement at your workplace to organize, support it the best way you can. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't have to be the one out front. I, I understand that, right. you know. Uh, uh, but you can support the person that is up front, even, even if it means after work or on the side, because I'll guarantee one thing, uh, they need encouragement. He or she will need encouragement because yeah. uh, it's a brave step. So I would say actively support organizing at, at Activities at their workplace. Um, uh, another thing workers can do, and uh, I found this uh, so cathartic or so life saving epiphany, is uh, be present. And this is something we talked about at our DSA chapter. Be present at a workers' crisis, mm-hmm. and if that means showing up at a rally, uh, which if uh, one has not been to a, a, a labor rally the first time uh, they will not leave the same person. I'll mm-hmm. guarantee that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's incredibly empowering, incredibly inspiring, um, you know, to see that, that you're not alone and that you're providing the support to know that they are not alone. Right. So, uh, uh, so that's another thing I think uh, people, workers can consider. Yeah, uh, those are excellent, excellent things. And... Th- I think one of the things that really strikes me when I go to events like that is that of people of the courage of people standing up, right? And that's the same with internal organizing drive too. That it takes a lot of guts, and it's uh, it's not only you know you know being uh, putting your job on the line even even illegally i mean it's illegal to be fired for any of this activity but as you and i know john uh it happens uh thousands of times a year <laughs> at least yeah, every day every, every day of the week <clears throat> every day of the week it happens and um and you know basically employers uh, uh, usually get away with it not always um we don't have very robust laws protecting the rights of workers in this country, and that's why it's especially tough here. But that also means that people that do stand up are, uh, as you say, they need to be supported. They they are putting uh, not only their job on the line, but also kind of swimming against the current of of, 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 as we said before about neoliberalism, tries to atomize everybody into into financial units, right? So consumer units, right. and which is the exact opposite of what a union is. A union brings people together, and people who don't necessarily agree on politics, people who don't necessarily agree on, <coughs> excuse me, uh, sports teams, people who don't necessarily agree on, uh, on maybe much of anything, 
And yet, uh, we, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's really powerful about a group of workers is that the one thing that they do have in common is their employer and, uh, and their desire for respect and better material conditions on the job. It's even worse than that, actually, in that if if a worker doesn't go out and get a job, they, they will calculate how much they should have earned in the time that they're fired. Yeah, it's like it's even wor- it's like rubbing salt in the wound, really. Um, but um, but anyway, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's that's it. No, I'm glad you put it in. Like I say, we're getting into the weeds there. So, um, uh, but you you have a good point there on atomization. Uh, to me, I state that um, that's really the, the true fundamental crisis facing us, yeah. the atomization, uh, uh, because uh, uh, without dealing with that, we probably can't even deal with, we can't get beyond that and repair that, then we can't even probably organize our workplace to the degree that we need it. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's uh, uh, one of my thoughts, is that the president uh, workers crisis. I mean, I recall uh, the solidarity movement in um, Poland, which really uh, drew my attention. Mm -hmm. It was certainly interesting to see it juxtaposed against Ronald Reagan's busting of PATCO, which happened at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, I won't argue that what the Polish people suffered under was far more I mean, it was far more authoritarian. I mean, to me, it's completely disingenuous to say they were the same. Uh, but the, but but what I read was that how the people's reaction to the message from their native son John Paul was that they were not alone that they they were able to deal with their atomization. Right. Um, so that leads me to one other thing, and then it's uh, workers should seek no battlefield. And uh, you know, I speak openly about what my faith teaches me about uh, the rights of workers, mm-hmm. and I think on the political front we've been doing. Uh, that for too long is letting the other side speak to uh, um, um, the values, maybe. Yeah. yeah, faith and values, exactly. So right. Same with patriotism. Yeah. Um, it's um, so uh, so. That's what I would say. Seek no battlefield. Um, uh, uh, you know, I'm looking right here at the Catholic Labor Network where John Paul II, who wrote in eight languages. Uh, conversed, I think, in 11, um, called unions an indispensable element of social life. Indispensable. I mean, he didn't just grab that word out of right. uh, thin air. He chose to make it to that word. It's indispensable. Yeah. So, uh, again, seed no battlefield. And uh, I also think we should look at, um, all workers should look, uh, while the work of unions is great, and I'm not going to speak poorly of any um, 
generalize about union leadership, local leadership, uh, but they're to seek other parallel uh, tracks of power. You know, you mm-hmm. and I are involved with the Democratic Socialists of America, mm-hmm. uh, bargaining for a common good as a group out there, and uh, Blue Green Alliance. Um, there's a lot of organizations out there that offer, uh, at, at the community level or national level, that offer uh, parallel tracks uh, to uh, bettering our lives. Right. Yeah, and, and those are um, the, the, the three groups that you mentioned. Well, actually, uh, the one group, uh, Bargaining for the Common Good, is really a, uh, a kind of a, a, a philosophy, I guess, or a, an approach to union activism, um, which I think uh, has lots and lots of uh, uh, really good things associated with it. And, and, and I always associate, first and foremost, with the Chicago Teachers uh, Union, who have gone through two strikes in Chicago, bargaining for the common good uh, and bargaining for, you know, uh, for for housing for the for homeless students. Right. I mean, that's they sit down at the bargaining table and and uh, have have tried to negotiate as an example that I know L.A. teachers and there's others as well. Oh, but it, but, it, but there actually is. Kind of get in the weeds here. Yes, it is philosophy, but it is literally an organization that you can find on mm. the web. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, based out that they have office, they're 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 um, supported by Georgetown University, Jesuit University in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, it's a philosophy, and there's an actual organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and Good. you know, while you and I will agree that there's nothing morally, ethically wrong with uh, workers trying to better themselves, um, it puts it into a good context that um, the betterment of the workers is a betterment of the community. Yeah. Uh, Chicago was a great example. Uh, the recent one, the leadership in L.A. under uh, uh, Caputo Pearl, I'm kind of, kind of lost his first name, but um, uh, and his organization. Alex, uh, I think. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, was incredible. I mean, incredible. They turned out 50,000 demonstrators the first day of their strike in downtown L.A. The organization has 30,000 members, and two-thirds of them were on the picket line. So they had Mm -hmm. 40,000 members of the L.A. community show up in pouring rain to say, this is our schools we're fighting for. Uh, The same is for hospitals, obviously, and healthcare. But I also see it being done with... um, uh, Retail too. People understand grocery store workers. You know, it's and it's really comes to the forefront with um, the current condition. So, mm-hmm. those are some of the thoughts I have for uh, workers. Um, as far as unions, <laughs> you know, it's um, it's um, wow, a whole other uh, level of uh, discussions of wish lists, I guess. But. Um, um, uh, uh, well, I will say, mm-hmm. no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say before we get off on that, I think that um, what comes to mind, <clears throat> you and I, as you said, we're part of the Democratic Socialists of America, and there is a the Boise chapter of DSA is organizing uh, uh, workers at a, a pizza place, Pie Hole, uh, which Missoula has uh, and Salt Lake and Denver have branches as well. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that and how that's going? 
Right, that's interesting. Um, and I, yeah, there's a lot, that, and, and that would actually segue into unions too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the capital L. So uh, I interviewed some of the organizers with uh, Pie Hall on Broadway, it's a location in Boise, Idaho. And what happened with them with COVID is that no dining in. And so they were losing wages. There's no tips, you know, and then that's a whole other issue, the tip economy. Right. Uh, but they were losing it to the, the, the delivery services, which is a whole other issue, the gig economy. Right. They were losing that. Yeah. Uh, they didn't necessarily have a bone to pick with those people, but they needed uh, better uh, wages compensation. And uh, they also weren't getting the proper uh, protective gear. Mm-hmm. So they started organizing, <clears throat> excuse me, and the management uh, fired the two lead organizers and uh, on the pretext that they weren't training their uh, replacements that they openly were hiring. Hmm. And um, some of the other workers said, well, if you're going to fire uh, our comrades here, you might as well get rid of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I always say they must, they, uh, the owner should have watched Stanley Cooper's movie, Spartacus. <laughs> give us Spartacus oh we're all Spartacus you know? right. so, um, and so they took to the streets and uh, like you say Boise uh, DSA picked this up and that's where I came across it and um, uh, what I find impressive too is that uh, uh, Idaho AFL CIO stepped right up their political director Jason Hudson who I know personally mm-hmm. uh, was down there uh, Joe Maloney the president of uh, FLCIO, who I know personally, was down there. You know, I got this directly from um, the workers there that, that I interviewed, mm-hmm. Mark. And I find this very inspiring because, you know, you're talking about six, eight workers kind of on the fringe. Um, we know there's going to be some tension between DSA and labor, mm-hmm. potentially. Mm-hmm. But, uh, 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 you know, segueing into what uh, Big L needs to do, I think this is exactly, I think uh, Idaho, here we are in the backwater, but Idaho AFL-CIO can be held up as an example of what um, uh, our like our national organization, our institution, the AFL-CIO, uh, needs to be doing, and perhaps is doing elsewhere in the country, mm-hmm. but this is the one I'm, I'm familiar with. Yeah. And a lot of uh, union brothers and sisters were down there, on the picket line, uh, led by uh, members of uh, IBEW Local 291, as an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, interesting, <clears throat> and now they've moved it forward, and uh, as we mentioned before we started recording, that uh, they're, uh, the organizers of uh, Pie Hall Workers Union are, are soliciting input from uh, workers in similar uh, situations, similar service industries, or elsewhere. Uh, to uh, do the first step in organizing and gathering uh, information and uh, 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 learning about similar situations. Yeah, <clears throat> that's a great step forward. Um, and we've struggled off and on for years here in Missoula to try to get kind of the, the low-wage service industry worker uh, organized, which is the union I come from, right? And um, but you know, even more broadly than that, and uh, and I estimated, for instance, in Missoula, 
um, about, and this is maybe statistics maybe two years old, um, about 54% of all the workers in Missoula are uh, low-wage workers, are, are, you know, either the gig economy or working in restaurants or, or uh, in, you know, uh, low-end health care or in retail. Those, that's, that's, a, that's a majority of workers. And um, trying to, you know, I, we should be watching um, and learning from, you know, what sort of things they're, they're trying in Boise, I think. Absolutely, and uh, that's another point I would say about uh, um, what uh, Big Al needs to do, labor needs to do, is uh, uh, no uh, amount is too small. You know, it's like the size doesn't matter. Right. That if it's if it's a small shop, because the way uh, neoliberalism has dealt with the workplace, you know, we're not going to organize tens of thousands of people at a factory anymore, like wow. um, the big struggles of the thirties. Right. Right. Yeah, it's a different terrain, isn't it? And and right. it, and it's more of this atomized terrain, like we spoke before, right? That people. Um, you know, when you work in a, a lot of, uh, fast food places, for instance, they, they have, uh, computer scheduling, right? Which schedules people, uh, you know, irregardless of their needs or wants, right? But, um, max, you know, it maximizes the employer's, uh, use of the workers, which ends up being that people can be, um, you know, on call, almost twenty-four. Some in some cases, almost twenty-four hours a day, and you never know when you're going to work. And if you don't jump up and go to work when they call, then you know. So you have you give over your whole life to this crappy job. Um, it, it is. It is. Uh, uh, it's. It's. It, it's something that cannot be sustained. I. I don't think it can be sustained. And so there's great opportunity to organize. I think. I agree. You know, that, and that um, to me, it's, I, I'm going to cycle back to what workers can do. And again, at a, at a humanitarian level, uh, at a values level, I, as I said, you know, I openly admit mine are, I try anyways for mine to be um, formed by my faith, um, mm-hmm. is um, despair is the biggest enemy. Yeah. I mean, it's okay. It, you could be pessimistic. Right. You know. And cynical, <laughs> yeah. But but despair, uh, and uh, to get up in the morning and think, not only is your life not going to get better, yeah, or go to bed at night and uh, it, have that sense, but it's not going to get better for your family. And however you define your family, be it your kids or your nieces and nephews, or uh, the, the family down the street whose children you recognize. Um, yeah, so uh, ultimately, you know, again, against, against this fight of atomization, of financialization right. of humanity, right. um, uh, we've got to be looking at lifting each other. I know that's kind of, you know, maybe that's, you know, that's um, not uh, a tool in the organizer's toolbox, but I, I, I wouldn't claim to be an organizer. Well, uh, well, I think it... it... I'm just thinking right now, I can't, what you mentioned is very, very important. And um, I heard something on uh, The Hills Rising, the show, um, you know, the YouTube show. And um, they quoted 
a study done by, I can't recall right now, but it was very, a university did this study, and they, they interviewed, they said that 25%, about 25% of young people in the United States right now have seriously considered suicide in the last three months. That, that, that is, I mean, that is a, a, a function of neoliberalism, and, and it's as important, I think, as thinking about how, you know, how do we do a general strike, right? I mean, it, the, the, whole, the whole gamut, which is kind of my pet thing, and um, that, uh, uh, you know, how do, how do we build to, uh, you know, lots of labor movements in, in more repressive countries have been able to do general strikes, not in the United States, why not? So, um, but you've got that whole, but it, it's just as important to try to figure out how to deal with that atomization, that feeling like there's no way out. And, uh, and that puts, you know, it's very, very tough. And um, all we can do is maybe look at history, right? And say, well, these folks had it um, and, and providing support to people, especially, uh, you know, if we're, we're having the young despair at that degree, um, we have some major uh, uh, we have some major changes to make, and and that also means le- change in, in leadership. I, I think that uh, you know our current leadership all the way across the board, whether it's um, you know national politics or you know perhaps uh, unions as well that. I mean, there's good leaders in there, but uh, a lot of leadership has failed, and, uh, and 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 that's we just can't we can't afford to lose young people. Um, right, not literally. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a staggering number. If it was half that, it'd be staggering. Yes. Um, and to me, right, what's the expression? We have to uh, quit pulling people out of the river and go upstream and upcountry and find out why they're getting thrown in. Yeah, or or do the cooperative thing, right? Keep pulling people out of the river, but then send a team upriver to try to take care of that. Right, right. Yeah, not quit pulling them out of the river, right. right. Yeah, right. And, and, uh, yeah, and, yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, and, um, and I... And I oh, sorry. Um, I, I was no, just, right just going to say that... Um, you know, at my time as a union representative, I spent a lot of time um, counseling people. I mean, I felt like I was uh, most of the time I was a counselor, and which I gladly did. You know, but that wasn't what I was kind of thinking when I first started doing this work that I would be doing. And um, in the, <clears throat> you know, and I'd have to draw lines and things like that because there's only so far I can go as a counselor, but. Mostly, people wanted it, you know, to have, uh, wanted to believe that things could get better, and wanted to have someone to, you know, sort of unload on. So, um, and, and you know, my hats off to all the union reps out there who who do that very same thing. I know there's plenty of them out there, and and uh, and how to try to translate that into um, change. That's the, you know, that's the key uh, thing, and and maybe. You know what's happening with the pie hole shop in Boise um, will be something that sparks that kind of because it's got both you know very individual eight or nine people. You know we can't be throwing people over because oh they're too small. Um, right. And um, and then you have institutional leadership supporting that. That's 
some good things can come from that, I think. Absolutely. Again, I'm very proud of of the play down there by Joe Maloney, Jason Hudson, uh, dynamic leadership coming right out of Idaho there, um, and uh, the pie hole workers who, uh, as young people, uh, I won't put words in their mouth or thoughts in their head, but it's really possible that Yeah, you know, we have to keep our heads I, up. I don't, I don't want to be, um, yeah, just, and, and, time will tell. Yeah. It's, but it's obviously critical times we're in, to, to, right. to say the least. Right, this is not a time to be sitting on the sidelines. And, right. um, and I do think that you, you never know what kind of spark. I do know that um, it, oftentimes workers and other in already unions are kind of inspired by people maybe not understand their situation real well, but once they do and rally to their cause, uh, that is that can be very powerful within already existing unions too and, and raise the question about, uh, you know, should we be doing more? And if so, what should we be doing? I think is, is really right. important. Um, right. I'll, I'll quote uh, Pope Francis, and I found this in the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, um, monthly newspaper, which I get as a retired member and got when I was active, um, uh, that addressing the Italian equivalent of the AFLCO, saying that unions only do half their mission by serving their members. Mm. The other half of the union mission is to serve those yet organized. Right. Very well. And, and yeah. That's. I think that's a good note to, to leave it at, John. Um, yeah. And yeah, that's, that, that, yeah. All right, Mark. Well, thank you so much. Um, and well, um, well, thank I'm you. Get chance here. Okay. Well, thank you, John. And um, this is uh, Voice of the People Radio by and for the ninety nine percent on KFGM one hundred five point five FM Missoula Community Radio. It's coming to America first. The cradle of the best and of the worst It's here they got the range and the machinery for change And it's here they got the spiritual thirst It's here the family is broken And it's here the lonely say That the heart has got to open in a fundamental way Democracy is coming to the U.S.A. It's coming 
we'll be making love again We'll be going down so deep The river's gonna weep And the mountain's gonna shout Amen It's coming like the tidal flood Beneath the lunar sway Imperial, mysterious and amorous rain Democracy is coming Democracy is coming. 